opportunity of meeting again as his people, uh, just to get in his word. And I'm hoping and praying that tonight you've already been praying for this service. But if you haven't, I'm asking that you would do so now, that uh, the Lord would have his way and will, and that we could receive straight from his truth exactly what we stand in need of. Amen? And so um, pray for your pastor. I desire your prayers. I need your prayers that uh, the Lord would have his way and have his will. If you have your Bibles tonight, uh, turn with me, please, back to 2 Timothy chapter number 3. And what I want to do this evening is review just a minute about what we started with last week so that we can really um, continue on and then everybody be on the same page. So 2 Timothy chapter number 3, verse number 16. The Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And we said last week that the Bible is making a claim here that we... Um, have to take very seriously. It says that all scripture, all 66 books from Genesis to Revelation is given by God's inspiration. That means it's God breathed. Do you remember us talking about that? That it was breathed by God and then written down by God's men. And it's so important um, that we remember that. And then it tells us something about the word of God. It says, first of all, that it's profitable for doctrine. That means it tells us what's right. And, and that's what the Bible does. It tells us God's standard, God's standard of righteousness, which is really the standard that counts. If he is creator, then he's in control. Can you say amen? So it's his standard that makes all the difference. And so the Bible tells us what is right according to God's standard, the doctrine. But then it says for reproof. Now, to reprove someone is to, is to tell them what they've done wrong, is to share with them that you know, this, this needs to change or that needs to change. And so uh, the Bible is making the claim that that's exactly what it does to us. It tells us what's right, yes, in doctrine, but it also tells us what's wrong by reproof. How many of you ever read the Word of God? Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you do this, but i got to do this regularly. As I get in the Word of God and I see what it's saying to me, um, then I've got to repent because I see that I am certainly not measuring up to a lot of what the Bible says. Very seldom. Do I look to the Word of God that I don't see some areas that need to change in my life? You know, and so please don't feel like you're the only one. That's for all of us. The Bible reproves us. It shares with us what's right, and then it tells us what's wrong. And then watch this. For correction, then it tells us how to get right. Amen? Uh, how that we can get right from our wrong lifestyle or our wrong choices, whatever the case may be. And then it says for instruction in righteousness. We said that's how we can stay right. So the Bible gives us all of this. Tells us what's right. Tells us what's wrong. Um, tells us how we can get right. Tells us how we can st uh, stay right. And all of this is for the purpose, verse 17 says, that the man of God may be perfect, watch this, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. God wants us growing in our faith. We are to grow to become more and more and more like Jesus. Can you say amen? That is our destiny. And that began at the moment we were born again into the family of God. God began the process of growing us to become more like his son. And he does that through the truth of his word. That's why the Bible tells us that we are to desire the sincere milk of the word so that we might grow thereby. And so the word of God instructs us in righteousness and shows us how we can become more like Jesus and become thoroughly furnished in all the good works that God wants us performing um, as believers. And so that's 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. That is really uh, the foundational verses that we started with, and we're going to look at some more tonight. Um, but 
If you remember, I told you that last week that we cannot prove the existence of God. We can't do that. Nor can we prove to anybody that the Bible is the Word of God. See, it takes faith to trust that God truly exists and loves us and has done for us what we can't do for ourselves. It also takes faith to trust in the validity that the Bible is God's precious, powerful Word. All of that's going to take faith. We need to understand that. You need to know that. Now listen to me, folks. Even though we can't prove the Bible is the Word of God, what we can do is give you evidence, evidence that certainly brings surety to my heart and mind that the Bible is the Word of God. And it's kind of for me, you know, and that's why I told you last time we were together, our faith is not a leap in the dark. Our faith, what we believe about God and what we believe according to His Word is based upon fact. It's got evidence, man, that backs all of this up. And that's what we need to remember. And that's what we hold to. And I'm so very thankful for that um, as we look to the Word of God and see evidence that keeps pointing uh, to the God who loves us. It's such a powerful thing. And so, for me, really what happens is if, if you start, it's like you're on a seesaw. You know, the seesaw has a tipping point. And, and if you keep building evidence upon evidence upon evidence upon evidence upon evidence, pretty soon it tips over and says, man, there's no way this can't be true. There's no way this can't be the Word of God. And I believe we can certainly do that when we look deeply into the Scriptures. And that's what we're going to continue to do. Now, I started offering you some proofs last week that, of why I believe the Bible to be God's Word. We, start out, we started off with the historical accuracy of the Word of God. And we said that what God's Word says about history, we know actually took place. Um, let me read to you again tonight um, one of the, my favorite quotes that come from a very respected and renowned archaeologist from, uh, from uh, Australia. Um, he said this. He said, the Bible is the most accurate historical book that's ever been written. And there's nothing that archaeology has ever found that disproves what's written on the pages of the Bible. Isn't that amazing? Now, it's not certainly not saying that archaeology has proved all the Word of God, but it is making a huge statement that nothing we've ever found while digging has disproved the Bible. That absolutely amazes me. And this is not coming from uh, somebody that, uh, that doesn't know their craft. I mean, he was the head of archaeology in the, in the whole country of, uh, of Australia and, and is very renowned and respected when it comes to his field. And he says the Bible is the greatest book of history that's ever been written. And the more we keep digging, the more we find it's true. We talked about how that was true for the book of Daniel, how that for years many people had doubted the validity and the truth of the book of Daniel until in an archaeological dig they found out that Daniel was saying what was exactly right, that Belshazzar was the last king of the Babylonian Empire. Then we talked about how the uh, archaeologists found the, uh, the uh, chariot wheels in the bottom of the Red Sea. And man, that absolutely amazed me when I began reading all of that because for years, the one of the areas that skeptics always pointed to was the splitting of the Red Sea. And they, they said, well, that's, that's just a bunch of 
uh, uh, fairy tales and hogwash. There's no way that could have happened until they began finding evidence of it. Uh, and, and I could give you more and more and more stuff that continually is found to be true. Another one, a good one, is the city of Jericho. Um, another good one is the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. They, nobody ever thought Sodom and Gomorrah existed until they started digging down really deep. You know why they had to dig really deep? Because God rained down brim, fire and brimstone from heaven because of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and it was completely and, and totally destroyed and buried in ashes. And so it took a long time to find what they were looking for, but they found evidence of it. It's amazing how that the Bible continually is proven to be true uh, historically through archaeological finds. And so the historical accuracy of the Bible is one of the evidences that we can all point to uh, that helps us um, to, uh, to strengthen our faith, no doubt about it, or at least it does mine. And then we talked about some scientific evidence. Now, how many of you know the Bible is not primarily a book of history or science? There's a, the Bible is a book that is given to us so that we might know who God is, who we are, and what he has done for us in the person of his son. However, the Bible does accurately contain historical record that can be proven. And the Bible does contain, listen, a whole lot about science, even though it's not primarily a scientific book. We see that the Bible contains a whole lot about different areas, different studies that's done in the field of science. And so we looked last week at really the field of epidemiology. You know what that is, don't you? We've talked a whole lot about that in the last three years. Um, epidemiology is the study of disease and how to prevent disease. Well, since we've been going through a worldwide pandemic since uh, uh, 2020, we talked a whole lot about epidemiology. Um, Dr. Fauci is an epidemiologist, you know, and so there's a, a lot of those that's been talking for quite a while now. But <clears throat> the, the Bible had a lot to say about that before anybody ever knew there was a word called epidemiology or there was ever going to be doctors that studied it. A whole lot to say. And it all came from way back in the writings of, uh, of Moses himself. We talked last week about the sanitary code of the Bible and how that God always commanded his people that they needed to continually wash their hands. It said that in Leviticus 15 and 11. No, nobody knew the importance of that until years later because nobody knew that in, in, in that time that germs existed. I mean, and if you didn't have the, the studies that have been performed before we got here, we wouldn't know it either. I mean, you can't see germs. You don't feel germs. You don't know germs exist unless they've been studied. And in that day, they hadn't yet been studied yet. God told his people, if you want to remain free of disease, you need to continually wash those hands. Now, how did Moses know that? Well, Moses knew it because God told him to write down in the book what would protect his people. We talked about the bubonic plague that happened in the 14th century BC, or excuse me, A.D., um, many, many hundreds of years after Moses wrote down to his people to, to wash their hands and quarantine the sick. We found that over in uh, Leviticus chapter number 13 and verse number 46, how that the, the Bible says if anybody gets the plague, uh, then what you need to do is quarantine that person. Well, in the 14th century throughout Europe, people were dying by the thousands. 
And they never could figure out why the plague just kept going and why people kept dying. And a lot of times what would happen, there'd be families in a home that would have dead in their home. And as lo the longer they stayed there, everybody got sick. They had so many dead that they were piling them up on the streets. And people were dying by the thousands. About 60%, some say, of the population of Europe um, died out during the bubonic plague. And then finally, somebody who had read the word of God said, well, we need to start quarantining people. Now, how in the world did Moses know before anybody ever knew about germs or ever knew about uh, the um, preventing diseases, how did he know that it was so important that you quarantine the sick? Well, because God told him. And then Moses wrote down what God had breathed. Amen? Again, all scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable for you and for me. See, it's not just spiritually profitable. It's also physically profitable. God gives us what we need to live the best life we can live. It's amazing. The Bible not only gives us um, the uh, sanitary code, but then gives us the dietary code. Uh, and, and you'll find that in Leviticus chapter number 11. Now, just last week, I was at my workplace and I was talking to uh, one of the men that I work with and, and we were talking about the fights that were on last weekend. I watched UFC 285 and, uh, and done some grilling uh, and, and we were uh, talking about the fights and I was talking about what we had grilled and I said, man, we had some good old ribs and some steak and I said, it was just fantastic, I loved it. He said, you know what, I love them ribs, I love pork chops, I love all that, but it just makes my blood pressure go sky high and I just can't eat it anymore. The doctor's taking me off of it. Now, we found out in recent years that it's not really good to eat a lot of pork. It causes your blood pressure to go up, doesn't it? It's not real good for you. Now, how many of you know Moses didn't know nothing about blood pressure in his day? He didn't have a blood pressure cuff. He had never been to a physical. But he wrote down in the Word that you should not be eating pork because it was going to be bad for you physically. He wrote down a lot of other stuff. He wrote down some, uh, now let me say this before we go any further. I am so thankful we're no longer under the old covenant, ain't you? <laughs> Praise God, I love some pork. I love some ribs and some pork chops, and I sure enough love some bacon. And, and, and the apostle Paul told Timothy, he said, Timothy, all of this food that you've got, God gave it to you, just bless it and eat it. Praise God, I'm going to bless it and eat it. But it is wise not to eat a whole lot of, of, of the pork that God said you probably shouldn't be eating uh, way back in that day. Now, he didn't just say that about, about pork, but in Leviticus chapter 11, he says that about different birds that they could eat. He said that the eagle, the osprey, the hawk, the falcon, they were all birds of prey and they couldn't be eaten. And then he talked about the vulture, the buzzard, um, and the raven. And these are scavengers. We know what buzzards do. They eat dead things. We know what ravens do. They eat dead things. So it would make sense that the people should not eat birds that eat dead things, right? That carries disease. Now, Moses didn't know any epidemiology back in his day, but he did have the word of God that was given to him. Word that was given to Moses to give to the people so that the people might be protected. Are you getting what I'm saying? All of this, all of this points to the validity and the truth that the Bible is God's precious word. Let me give you another one. In 1861, or excuse me, 1840, they had a problem with expectant mothers. 
these mothers who were expecting babies, one out of five of them were dying. I want you to think about that. That is a huge number. One out of every five of the women who were expecting babies were dying. And the doctors didn't know what was going on. And then one doctor got to noticing that while they were caring for these expecting mothers, the doctors would go inspect, go in and, and, and inspect or, or, or see to one of the ladies, and he would come right out and then see to another lady and, 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 and do the, what he needed to do there. But he never washed his hands. And so what was happening, the doctors that were supposed to be caring for these patients, they were actually spreading disease through germs. And they never saw the importance or the need of washing hands. And so one doctor finally said, hey, let's start washing our hands. And when they did that, and they actually thought he was crazy. You can go back and read about it. They thought he was crazy. I mean, we don't have time to wash hands because we've got all these people to take care of. And they tried, finally got him to try what he was wanting them to do. Uh, and after they did, it went from one in five mothers dying to one in 86 mothers dying. It's a big change, isn't it? But really, all they needed to do was just read Numbers 19, 14 through 19. Look there with me. Numbers chapter 19, brother, verses 14 through 19. Look what the Bible tells us there. It's amazing. This is the law. When a man dieth in the tent, all that come into the tent and all that is in the tent shall be unclean seven days. So there's again some of the law about uh, uh, quarantining from the dead. Then look at verse 15. Watch what it says. And every open vessel which hath no covering bound upon it is unclean. He didn't want germs getting into things you were drinking and eating. Go to verse 16. And whosoever touches one that is slain with a sword in the open fields or a dead body or a bone of a man or a grave shall be unclean seven days. Go to verse 17. Watch this. And for, uh, and for an unclean person they shall take of the ash of the burnt heifer of purification for sin and running water shall be put thereunto in a vessel. Look at the next verse. And a clean person shall take kissup and dip it in the water and sprinkle it upon the tent and upon the vessels and upon the persons that were there and upon him that touched the bone or one that was slain or dead or a grave. Verse 19. And the clean person shall sprinkle upon the unclean on the third day, third day and on the seventh day. On the seventh day shall he purify himself and wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and shall be clean at even. So what God is saying is when you've been in contact with things that could make you sick or with dead people, what you've got to do is get cleaned up. And you do that by quarantining yourself away from the people and then use water and hyssop. And the hyssop was actually a disinfectant that was used in that day to kill the germs. Now, did the people know the hyssop was killing germs? No, but God did. Did Moses know that there were germs that was going to make the people sick? No, but God did. Do you see this? This amazes me. I'm so thankful for it. So let's move on from epidemiology of the study of disease to biology. And what's the Bible say about it? Do you realize that the blood that is running through your veins is the life of your body? I mean, I'm telling you, if your heart stops pumping that blood through your body, then, there's, then, then you die. I mean, there has to be blood taking the nutrients to cells. It does that. But not only does it take food to cells, but it also removes waste from cells. 
And the blood also fights disease. There's a lot of things that blood does. Now listen to me. We didn't even know that blood circulated through the body until 1860. They didn't know that. And before that time, before that time, what they would actually do was the practice of bloodletting. Has anybody ever heard that? Now what is bloodletting? They would either open up a person's vein and allow blood to pour out because they thought their blood was bad. Or they would take leeches, put on the person so that the leeches would suck the blood out. Do you know that's actually what killed George Washington? I didn't know that until I was doing some study on this this week. George Washington got an infection and was extremely sick, and the doctors in his day, they didn't know any better. Again, they didn't even find out until 1860 that blood circulates through the body and really was so important uh, to, to life itself. And, and so they began doing the process of bloodletting to George Washington. He didn't get better, so guess what they did? They did it again. And what they actually did was kill the president because they performed some very bad medical practices that was based upon the science that they had at that time. Did you hear me? Well, we know we're supposed to always trust the science. Right? Now listen. Listen to me. I want you to think about this. I'm not against science. I am thankful for science. Let me say something else. God's not against science. He's not. I will say this. When science starts to prove the word of God, that don't give me more faith in the word of God. It might give me a little more faith in science. Are you hearing me? Science has changed throughout the ages. And it is still changing. And hopefully, I hope and I pray that science continues to get better so that it might catch up with the word of God. Because it's been trying for a long time. God started all the way back in the day of Moses telling people what they needed to do to live healthy lives. Why? Because he loved them. Why did he give his truth to his man so that his man might give it to the people? His chosen people that he loved and had purpose for? That's why. So I'm not against science. Matter of fact, I believe science done right does not discredit God but gives massive evidence for God. I am, I'm not the only one. Sir Isaac Newton believed the same thing. Do you know Sir Isaac Newton, before he became the scientist that he was, was actually a theologian? He went to seminary, loved the Lord, was a faithful man of God. And so he believed he was understanding more about God the Creator by studying the creation. It wasn't until the materialists came along that all that was done away with. That came a little bit later, about 30, 40 years after Sir Isaac Newton. Then everything changed. But still, still, science is doing all it can to catch up with God's word. It wasn't until 1860 they found out that blood circulated through the body. God knew that a long time ago. It wasn't until 1959 that Sir Francis Crick discovered the, the, uh, the, the DNA and, and all the information that we have in our bodies. The plan 
for our bodies. And if our body has a plan and a program, it might have a planner and a programmer. Amen. Are you seeing what I'm saying? But listen to me now. People like, um, what's his name? People like Charles Darwin in 1858, he didn't know what was going to happen through the discovery of Francis Crick in 1959, did he? I believe if he would have known the complexity of the cell, he'd have burned his book. But science hadn't yet caught up to the truth. Do not be dismayed when science goes against the Bible. It's been doing that for a long time until it catches up. Let me give you some more. Not only in the area of biology, when it comes to the blood of the body, let me just give you that verse, though. I don't want to miss that. Um, Leviticus 17, verse number 14. Listen to what the Bible says about that. I love this. Leviticus 17, verse 14. Talking about blood here. For it is the life of all flesh. The blood of it is for the life thereof. Can you say amen? So, so what Moses, by inspiration of God, was saying all those many years ago, was you need the blood. If you don't have the blood, listen to me, you don't have life. Now those doctors who were caring for uh, George Washington, if they'd have read Leviticus 17, 14, he might have had a few more years to live. Right? Therefore I said unto the children of Israel, you shall eat the blood of no manner of flesh, for the life of all flesh is the blood thereof. Whosoever eat it shall be cut off. So what he's saying is, that blood is for life. God knew that. Gave it to Moses long before science ever caught up. Long before. Actually about 3,000 years before. It's a long time. Let's go on. Not only does the Bible say, talk a lot about biology, but it also talks a whole lot about cosmology. Now, let me tell you what we take for granted. We take for granted the fact that the earth is suspended in space. You say, well, duh, Brother Israel, everybody knows that. Well, everybody knows it now. Let me tell you why everybody knows it now. Because technology has advanced. And now we have telescopes. We have telescopes that we can uh, sit on earth and look up into the heavens with. We have telescopes that we can send out into the heavens that go light years outside of our solar system that are still taking pictures of the universe that's still expanding. We have all of these technological advances that show us, that prove to us that our earth is suspended in space. But they didn't always have those scientific technological advances all the way back in the day, in our past, in the, in the history of the world. And so in that day, they just did the best they could with the science that they had. How about the ancient Egyptians? What did they believe about the earth? The ancient Egyptians believed that the earth sit upon five pillars. Pillars like you would build a building with. Pillars like so on our front porch. They believed the earth sit on five pillars. What about the ancient Greeks? I mean, everybody always says the ancient Greeks were were so wise, and they were, and so were the Egyptians. The Egyptians did some amazing, fantastic things in their day that um, still really blowing people's minds today, but they didn't have all the truth. Are you hearing me? 
And what they had, they only had because of the scientific technology that they had in that day. But science changed. Technology changed. And we began to discover a whole lot of things that we didn't know before. But in that day, they believed the earth sit on five pillars. What about the Greeks? The Greeks believed that the earth was on the back of a giant by the name of Atlas. You've probably seen the pictures of Atlas with the world on his shoulders, big muscled up dude, you know, with the, the world on his, on his shoulders in between his shoulder blades. The Greeks believed that. What about the Hindus? The Hindus believed the earth rested on the back of elephants. And then somebody said, well, what's the elephant standing on? Somebody said, well, we got, a, we got an answer for that too. The elephant is standing on a huge turtle. They said, okay, what's the turtle standing on? They said, well, the turtle is standing on a sea snake that is slithering through the cosmos. The science of that day, what they knew, as they looked up into the heavens, told them, well, the earth is on the back of elephants who's on a turtle who's on a sea snake what's the word of God say now it said it all the way back in the book of Job 750 years before Christ was born what does the Bible say in the book of Job Job 26.7 the Bible says Job 26.7 watch this he stretched out the north over the empty place I'm still thinking about that. He stretched out the north over the empty place. But look at the next part. That's what I really want you to see. And hangeth the earth upon what? Now, fast forward to today and the technology that we now have that science has provided, right? And we see the Bible is absolutely right because we see the pictures that the spaceships and the Hubble telescope and the, um, that, that, that we have of the earth being suspended in space on nothing. The Bible said it a long time ago. Let's move from cosmology to astrology, the study of the stars. Do you know people have tried to count the stars for pretty much all of time? L let me give you this guy's name. His name is uh, Hipparch Hipparchus. Hipparchus was a Greek fellow who decided he was going to map out the stars and tell everybody in the known world at that time how many stars there were. And so he worked really hard at it, and he drew out his charts as he looked at the night sky. And after many years of doing this, he found out that there were 1,022 stars. He said, that's how many stars we have. Well, I'm not really getting on Hipparchus a whole lot. Have you ever laid out in your yard at night? I used to do this a lot when I was a kid, and look up into the heavens and try to count the stars. I never got to 1,022. This brother had counted a lot and mapped out a lot. I mean, he'd done a lot of hard work. Some of his writings are still available if you want to look at them. 
That was 150 years before Jesus was born. 250 years later, there was a man by the name of Ptolemy who said, I'm going to check out and see whether or not there's that many stars. And so he counted, and he said, well, Hipparchus was wrong. There's not 1,022 stars. There's 1,026 stars. Again, worked really hard at it. Then guess what happened 1,300 years later? A man by the name of Galileo, he came along, and he admitted his first telescope, and he looked up into the night sky, and he found out there were stars that he's seen close up, and then there were more stars he's seen far off. And he saw, he said, man, there's not 1,022 or 1,026. There's millions and millions, maybe billions of stars. Stars are everywhere. All right, fast forward to the Hubble Space Telescope that, well, it's been flying now for, what, 30-something years, I think? And what it began to see was that, hey, there are millions and billions of stars just in our area that we live in, the Milky Way galaxy. But then it's found there's more galaxies. Then you fast forward to the James Webb Telescope, the, the one that's uh, been sending pictures back now, uh, I don't know what, just exactly how many years, but the ones we started getting back last year. Y'all remember? And they said, you ain't going to believe it. There's even, it's even further than what the Hubble could see. And it still keeps going on and on and on and on, more and more and more stars, and the universe itself is still expanding. Now listen to me. In the beginning, God, by his spoken word, created the heaven and the earth. How powerful is the word of God that the universe is still obeying even at this very moment? It's still going. Amazing. Took us a long time to figure out there was an innumerable number of stars, at least for man. Man can't count them. Can't count them. We, we, it's, it's been said over and over again. A leading cosmologist once said this. He said, There are more stars in our universe than there are grains of sand on the seashore. Now think about that a minute. You take all the sand on all the seashores in all the world. He says you add all of those grains up and there's more stars than that. That's a lot of stars. And he still is making a guess. Listen to what Jeremiah 33:22 says. Watch. Jeremiah 33 verse number 22. As the host of heaven, what's it say, folks? Cannot be numbered. God said this a long time ago. Psalm 147, verses 1 through 4 also says that God knows the numbers of stars. And he calls them all by their names. How big is God? 
I've got three kids. And it was like pulling teeth trying to name them youngins. Just three. The Bible says God knows the numbers of the millions upon billions upon billions upon billions of stars in our universe. Not only does he know the number, he knows their names. And he said in Jeremiah 33, a long time before we figured it out scientifically, that there were more stars than you count. Amen? Now, aren't you glad the Bible don't give us some kind of crazy story about the earth being on the back of a giant, on the back of elephants, riding a turtle, riding a snake. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad your Bible gives you truth and it gives you truth because God breathed it to his men and his men wrote it down? What time we got? 740. You find that book. What about prophecy? We've looked at historical accuracy of the Word of God, the Bible. We've looked at the scientific accuracy of the Bible. Now, let's look at the prophetic accuracy of the Bible. And I really don't even want to start this tonight. I'm not going to start that tonight. We ain't got time to do that tonight. This is what we'll do. We'll do that next week, all right? But I want to share with you this. Do you know the Bible gives over 300 prophecies concerning the first coming of Jesus that was written starting in the book of Genesis all the way back in the garden? And it gives over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming of Christ. Do you know that all 300 were fulfilled in the first coming of Christ? Now, what I want you to do this week for homework, and I only want you to think of it as homework because nobody likes to do homework. What I want you to do this week, though, is just check out Psalm 22. And we're going to talk about the importance of Psalm 22 and how it relates to prophecy and the life of Christ next Wednesday night. All right? Anybody got anything else, comments or questions?